My next door neighbor, his name was Danny. He was born on the 4th of July. He was not my contemporary. He was old enough to be my father. He lived with his wife, Barbara, and they had one child, a little girl, who for a short time was my friend. When Danny was 26 years old, he reached some sort of breaking point. No one will ever know exactly why. Maybe he had always been troubled. Maybe his tour in Vietnam had left him with the deepest, undiagnosed and unaddressed suffering. Maybe he was a substance abuser, I don't know. It was the early 1970s and nobody talked about such things then. Specifically, it was May 1974. It was a Wednesday. I know it was a Wednesday because I was dressed for Wednesday night prayer meeting. And as I've often said, I had a drug problem as a small child. I was drugged to church every time the doors were open. (laughs) I was standing there in the driveway waiting for my father to get home from work. Danny and Barbara's daughter was right there beside me at the rear end of my mother's car when we heard a scream. And we turned in the direction of that scream to see Barbara, her mother, my neighbor running, and she was running for her life. Danny took her life. Not 20 yards from where we stood. And then he took his own. And I've never spoken of this publicly to today. The next thing I remember was my mother grabbing me by the collar of my shirt in understandable hysteria and dragging me in the back door. Of the rest of that evening and the rest of that event, I have only a flashbulb memories. All the police cars and the flashing lights, my uncle arriving because he had been that family's pastor. The ambulance driving slowly up the road with my father's car behind it. In the years before cell phones, I've often wondered what dread my father must have had as he drove and realized that ambulance was going to his very street. I can remember standing at the window, eating a red popsicle, and my mother saying, son, get away from that window. But the event itself, Barbara's death and Danny's death by his own hand, my four-year-old mind will never forget. That was my first encounter with death. It was horrific. And it was my first encounter with suicide. I wish I could say it was my last. But no. In emergency rooms, ICUs, called by sheriff departments, standing over caskets, facing it with my own extended family, and counseling my own son and his friends who were the first to find a friend who had taken his own life. It has persisted, and I'm not alone, not a person in this room, not one, has been immune to what is nothing short of an epidemic in this country, and unknown to any of us what I was going to say today, a person came up to me just before I got up here today to tell me that their 17-year-old nephew had in fact taken his life last night. I bring up this difficult subject today because this week marks the beginning, today marks the beginning of National Suicide Prevention Week. It's a campaign to turn the tide in this country, 
Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in this country. Top 10. And for young people, those ages 15 to 34, it is the second leading cause of death. Eclipsed only by car accidents. And everybody knows how bad 15 to 24-year-olds can drive. For every death, there are 25 failed attempts. And it's not just tragic artists and celebrities. People like Kurt Cobain, Lucy Gordon, Anthony Bourdain, Junior Seau, Robin Williams, Mac Miller, put a sharp point on the problem because they are so well known and their demise is so very public. But for every celebrity, and God love and help those families, there are thousands of common, regular, normal people who are suffering. They are veterans who by conscience went to the front lines and the hell they endured and witnessed and participated in has so wounded their souls that no amount of medals or commendations will heal them. They are teenagers, bullied or confused, impulsive or lonely, and without the yet developed ability to understand the long-term consequences and finality of their actions. They are middle-aged men and women who maybe for years have suffered from mental illness and the stigma, the lack of proper health care or even insurance to get help, or the shame that has kept them from seeking the help that they need. They are gay and lesbian who commit suicide at a rate six times the national average. They are older adults, exhausted by chronic pain or life itself, and they reach a place where any exit door, any exit door whatsoever is better and the life that they have led. It is a collective problem. And for all of our emphasis on wellness and health in this country, we are failing on this count. And I will rush to say that religion has largely failed in its response as well. I can't speak necessarily about other religions, but Christianity has had sort of this dual wrong-headed response to this crisis. On the Roman Catholic side, and I know this is a broad brush, there is nuance here, but historically, it has been rather cut and dry. Take your life, you commit a mortal sin, and you land yourself in eternal perdition. In recent years, that position has softened. The catechism now reads, we leave judgment to God alone. We should not despair of the salvation of persons who have taken their own lives By ways known to God alone, God can provide the opportunity for restoration. But ask many Catholics on the street, and they will say that it's the former, not the latter, as they've been taught. And we who are Protestant are caustic in a different direction. We cannot conceive that a person of faith, if they were really trusting God, would ever take their own life. So a person who does, we wonder how their faith or their prayer life or their salvation could be so defective. But that is anti-science, anti-therapy, anti-medication. If you are suffering from depression, if you have thoughts of self-harm, telling someone that, that they should pray more, or go to church more, or read their Bible more, is as wrong-headed as we can be. I have had such depths of despondency in my own life that no amount of bearing down and trying harder would ever work. 
It's impossible to do more when you can't even get out of the bed. You would never tell a cancer patient, you should try harder. Would you? You would never tell someone who has had a heart attack, you should have prayed more. You would never tell someone with a dislocated shoulder, why didn't you just believe? You would send all of them to the proper physician to get the help that they need. Anyone considering ending their own life, very simply, is not well because of the innate drive to live. And they need comprehensive treatment. They need holistic support, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. Pray, yes. Meditate, yes. Talk to your pastor, yes. But see a therapist. Visit with your doctor. Get some exercise. Take your meds. Enough of this demonization of those who suffer. And you may never thought about this, but you can be thankful for Jesus and Zoloft at the same time. Can I get a witness? You can be thankful for your church and your physician. You can spend time with a spiritual director and a psychologist or psychiatrist. I've had pastors, wise, kind pastors, who have so helped me in times of crisis. They helped me get through. Thank God for them. And I've had a therapist, a licensed mental health counselor, who, honest to God, helped save my life. A human being, as the good book says, is fearfully and wonderfully made. And so often the solutions to our worst problems come to us fearfully and wonderfully and complex in many cases. Let me read something for you this morning. This is from the book of Psalms. It is a part of Psalm 31, verses 9 through 15 or so. I'll read it and give you some background on it. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am in distress. Tears blur my eyes. My body and soul are withering away. I am dying from grief. My years are shortened by sadness. Sin has drained my strength. I am, awa- I am wasting away from within. I am scorned by all my enemies, despised by my neighbors. Even my friends are afraid to come near me. When they see me on the street, they run the other way. I am ignored as if I were dead, as if I were a broken pot. I have heard the many rumors about me, and I am surrounded by terror. My enemies conspire against me, plotting to take my life. But I am trusting you, O Lord, saying, you are my God. My future is in your hand. You know, we're really quick to embrace scriptures that are direct, that say thou shalt or thou shalt not. And we're quick to embrace scriptures and get into these deep, dark uh, doctrinal dissertations and debate them and dissect them. We're not quite as quick to do business with these raw, emotional, honest passages of Scripture. They comfort us, though, if we can open our heart to them in a way that no doctoral dissertation or rule of law can. Robert Frost said, Poetry is when a feeling has found words. And that is so descriptive 
of this psalm and of David at his best. This is David writing these words. David looms large in the psalms. He wrote about half of the 150 individual psalms that we have in the Old Testament. And this is one of his most forlorn. He is miserable. (laughs) You see that, don't you? He is dispirited. This isn't like his son, Solomon. We saw his words last week. You know, Debbie Downer, who got to the end of, got to the end of his days and he's just all... That's not the case here. This is a deep, depressive episode. He is struggling here. Lord have mercy. Tears washing his face. He feels like he's wasting away. His grief is overwhelming. The world... He feels like is aligned against him. He feels like he is so abandoned. And there are multiple psalms similar to this one that stretch from his youth to his old age. He cycles through these throughout his life, but this certainly is one of the darkest. Scholars believe he wrote this as Saul was chasing him to kill him in the deserts of En Gedi. I have a picture for you here. I've been to this place. It's not far from the Dead Sea. There's one tiny spring of water out in the middle of this mountainous desert place. And when I was standing there looking up at that wall at these caves, the caves of En Gedi, I like to think that maybe David, literally and figuratively, was back in one of these dark holes. And he couldn't save himself and he couldn't help himself and he's overwhelmed and he doesn't know what to do. He despairs of his life and all he can do is write down in his little journal what he's feeling in his heart. And he pours all of that out. Here he is, David, the future king of Israel, the anointed one of God, the giant killer, the talk of the town, the golden child. And he wishes he were dead. He can barely go on, and he says, and I hope you saw that, my life is as useless as a broken pot. Now, if you've never felt that way, never fallen that far, thank your God for it. But if you have, you know from experience how dark such times and places are. And there are people that we all know that are in such dark places even now. Not every person who is depressed, is suicidal, but there are signs when someone is in trouble. I hope you know some of those. If they talk about hurting themselves, if they are unexpectedly trying to get access to guns or pills, if they have increased their substance abuse, if they have said they feel like they have no purpose in living, if they're suffering from severe anxiety, if they feel trapped or hopeless or severely withdrawn, reckless, Sweeping mood changes, you can do something about that, a little bit. There's a 21st century phrase in our security conscious world. If you see something, that sure does apply here, doesn't it? We see a family member or a friend who is struggling. Don't let it slide, thinking it'll all be okay. It's proven with survivors that sometimes, with just a little help, Just a little expressed kindness or compassion, it makes all the difference in the world. The most simple and basic and effective way to help someone in their darkest days is what? Listen. Just listen. Sit with them. Empathize. 
Join them in that struggle. You, with a little bit of light and wellness, can go into the dark, into the loneliness with them, and sit there with them. That's all you need to do. And when you have a friend or a family member that you can't help, and sometimes we can't, we can do all we can to get them to someone who can help them. And if it means hospitalization, so what? We can't afford that. What's the option, my friends? Well, what will people say? Can't we live long enough to quit caring about what people say? This false sense of self-reliance can get in the way of people actually getting the help that they need. Years ago, I had, I had just settled in for the night and was lying in bed reading a book. Phone rang. The old kind of phone. We had to get up and go to the kitchen and get it off the wall. Some kids that have no idea what I'm talking about. I told Braden one day at my mother's house, pick up the phone and see if there's a dial tone. He went, what, what, what's a dial tone? Think about that. Your grandkids, kids, they've never heard a dial tone in their life. And they've never had the pleasure of hanging up on somebody. <laughs> right? I mean, what's this? Anyway. I got up and got the phone ringing on the wall. And as another aside, <laughs> did you grow up with that phone that had like 100 yards worth of cord? And you could just like walk around the house, go outside, sit on the porch, talk to your girlfriend, to your mama, turned it off from the kitchen? Oh, anyway. I went to the phone, and it was a man in my church. He was hysterical. And when he could finally get the story out, and I could finally understand his son, who was my age, and is my age, was in the woods behind his house with a firearm, threatening the worst to himself. I threw on some clothes, and off I went, and I remember walking down into those woods that night. It was dark. Sheriff deputies everywhere, hands on their weapons. Terrified, I was terrified. My heart beating way up here in my throat. I got down to where he was, and there he sits with that pistol in his hand. Father was with me. And I just sat down in the wet moss and the leaves with him. Shivered, not just from the cold. He talked a little. I talked even less. And after a few minutes, we were able to walk up out of those woods, he, his father, and myself, and go straight to a waiting ambulance. Not a police car or a morgue. Years later, after I had left that church, I saw him. And he looked so good. Handsome as the devil. Light and mischief dancing in his eyes. He had married. He had started a family. He was working hard. He had gotten sober. And he had come out of the darkness and the despondency that had almost taken his life. And he brought up that night to me. And he said something I, I won't soon forget. He said, Ronnie, I really didn't want to hurt myself that night, but I might have. Thank you. I don't know what I did because I don't even remember anything that I said. 
And if I did say something, it was about 15 seconds of mumble jumble. All I did was sit down in the dark, in the cold, and in the wet, and he did the talking. I didn't do a thing. I didn't have a magical intervention plan. I didn't have three easy steps to improve your life. I had none of those things. I just simply sat down in the dark. Just sit down in the dark. Sit down in the dark. I won't be simplistic. That won't solve every crisis. But sometimes, it gives just enough time and space for a little light to shine. And that light can be enough. And for those of you who are here today in the dark, who feel like David did, (laughs) my life is just a broken pot. What a great phrase. Let me tell you one more story. My wife has learned to make the most beautiful artwork out of broken things. Broken glass, thrown away lumber. I know it's thrown away because I've gone over into the dumpster for it. All manner of recycled materials. Come to our garage. See her work upstairs in the garage, but downstairs it's just boxes. Boxes and buckets of what appears to be castaway junk. No, it just hasn't been assembled yet. This kind of art has a long tradition. One of the oldest is something called kintsuji. It originated in Japan centuries ago and is the process of taking the broken shards of a pot, a plate, a ceramic teacup, and binding it back together with lacquer, resin, Dusted with gold or silver. Kintsugi means the golden repair. An artist who worked with the medium would never throw a broken pot away. They pick up the pieces, no matter how many or how shattered, and they put them back together. The mending becomes the masterpiece. They never hide the seams. They accentuate them. And they fuse these joints together with precious metals so that they become a showpiece. And one artist says, this is the art of scars. Producing something more beautiful after the mending than before the breaking. When David wrote Psalm 31, he was 25, 26 years old. If he had acted out upon his impulses that day, who knows? He would live nearly 50 more years as king, writer of psalms, soul of a nation. He would become arguably the most important individual in the Old Testament, if not Israeli history. And to this day, his name is revered as one of the great kings of antiquity. This life that had amounted to no more than a broken pot got picked up repaired, and put back together stronger than ever. So I'll leave you with the words of Ernest Hemingway. The world breaks everyone. But afterward, many 
are stronger at the broken places. And may God give us that grace.